My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford. And welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Dr. Mala Murthy, an assistant professor of molecular biology and neuroscience at Princeton University. Thanks for joining us today, Mala. I'm happy to be here. So can you describe your interest in biology, the progression of your interest in biology? So for instance, you went to MIT and majored in biology. And so in a land of physicists and computer scientists and mathematicians and such, you were, you were drawn to biology. Why? So my love for biology actually began in high school when um, I had the opportunity to work in a lab during the summer. And um, I fell in love with the lab environment and the process of doing science and biology in particular. And I chose to go to MIT actually to add quantitative rigor to biology for me. Um, and I took computer science and advanced math classes there. I can't say that I remember it all, but it has influenced the way in which I've done science. And my work has really moved in a much more quantitative and computational way as time has gone on. And I think that's in part due to my MIT training and background uh, mm. to be less afraid of math and in part due to the way science uh, and neuroscience in particular has gone, I think. So uh, I should say you were a graduate student here at Stanford with Tom Schwartz. But rather than asking you specifically about your work in Tom's lab, I thought I'd ask you a more general question about Stanford. So you're now at Princeton, which in the interest of full disclosure, I was a undergrad and graduate student there. So I know it somewhat intimately, so which is why I'm asking you about this. So Princeton recently decided to change the overall organization of their neuroscience community in a number of different ways. And Stanford's also in the midst of a reorganization of its neuroscience. So maybe you could describe for us some of the things that are changing at Princeton and what you see their most important effects as being so far. And given what you know about Stanford's neuroscience landscape, do you think there are lessons that the Stanford community should keep in mind during this transition? So it's a really interesting and full question, and I'll try and do it justice. Um, so I first will say that I loved Stanford. And um, I love being a graduate student there, even though I did the last two years of my PhD at Harvard because um, Tom Schwartz moved from Stanford to Harvard. But um, one of the things I loved most and remember most about being a graduate student at Stanford was my time in the MCP department, actually, Molecular Cellular Physiology. And what was so special about it was that it was a tight-knit group of scientists. There were only eight PIs in the department, eight labs, really. And um, we were very close community with common interests. and you knew everybody in, in the other labs. And um, that's this is something I found at Princeton. It's also a tight-knit community. Because it's not associated with the medical school, I think it is going to stay you know, a relatively small size where the community atmosphere will be there. It was a big part of my experience at Stanford, and um, it's something that I see happening in Princeton Neuroscience is this sort of integrated, well-focused community. And in my opinion, it's, it's really essential for growing a new endeavor in a really strong way. And so if I had any advice to give for Stanford Neuroscience, which, you know, I'm not sure they need my advice, it's, uh, <laughs> is, is sort of keeping that feeling going. I mean, Stanford has had these smaller departments embedded into neuroscience, and I think it would be a shame to get rid of that. I think it's one of the strengths Stanford has. And so to, to keep that smaller communities within a larger community aspect, uh, I think might be important. So Following graduate school, you joined Jill Laurent's lab at Caltech, where you studied the olfactory system in Drosophila. And while in Jill's lab, you published a paper in 2008 that showed that in the olfactory sensory system of the fly, that there's both a high degree of real stereotypy, but also that other neurons uh, are, are very not stereotyped at all. So could you describe what these results are in a little more detail? Yeah, so I have to say that when I took up this issue in Jill's lab, I don't think it was a burning issue 
for many people in the field. Um, I think I was sort of on the fringes working on this uh, stereotypy issue. And the question we had in mind was to test the, the hypothesis that most people had, which is that the fly brain is really quite stereotyped. So that if you study a neuron in one fly, it's going to be just like the neurons in all the other flies. And um, you know, we had the hunch that this might not be true as you move deeper and deeper into the nervous system. And in fact, that's what I found was that um, in the mushroom body, which has about 2,500 cells per brain hemisphere, um, there's a large number of neurons, and these neurons are also involved in plasticity, and they turn out not to be stereotyped across animals. So if you record from the same neuron in different animals, you find different functional properties. And this kind of work seems to be now coming up in other systems. So this kind of work has been done in the olfactory system of mammals and now in other places in the fly, and it seems to be a common theme that circuits, even in C. elegans, circuits are less stereotyped than we anticipated they would be. Can you just elaborate for people that don't study flies how people that do study flies really define what the same cell in different flies means? Yeah, so the concept of identity, I think, is well, it's an important thing to think about. So we defined uh, an identifiable neuron as one that's shared the same genetic identity, so it's specified by you know certain uh, enhancers or patterns of gene expression, anatomy, and birth time, so it's born at the same time in development. And so based on those criteria, we defined a subpopulation within this complex region of the brain and then reported from enough neurons that we were guaranteed to have replicates in our data set. So we used statistics to bolster the evidence that we had recorded from many, many of the same type of neuron. But in fact, these neurons were not identifiable. That is, their functional properties were different. So even though we knew we had replicates, we had to have recorded from the same neuron more than once, there were no functional replicates. Another important aspect of that study was uh, the use of models. So we made predictions about what physiology would look like had we recorded from these replicates, and then we compare those models to to the actual data. That was really important for that interpretation because when when physiology is variable, the question then is how variable it, is it? You know, uh, compared to what? And so having a model was really useful um, in order to make that claim. So uh, you were a postdoc in Jill Laurent's lab at the same time as Glenn Turner, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, we spoke with Glenn a couple of weeks ago, and you described some of the technical difficulties involved with developing the first method of in vivo wholesale patch from adult Drosophila neurons. And earlier this year, you co-authored a paper with Glenn where you provided a sort of detailed protocol of making these recordings in live flies. So for many people, I think it's kind of hard to imagine doing these types of experiments with something as small as a fruit fly. Can you walk us through kind of how it's done? Yeah. In fact, when I started my lab, I was afraid nobody would want to join to do microsurgery on flies and these um, painstaking recordings. But fortunately for me, that has not been the case. So I actually arrived in Jill's lab just when Rachel Wilson left the lab, and she and Glenn had worked together to set up this preparation for recording from neurons. So I got to benefit from all of the hard work they put in. And then Glenn and I together started recording from Kenyan cells, which are I think the smallest neurons in the fly brain. So uh, not only were we going for small fly neurons, but the smallest of the fly neurons. I guess the preparation for those of your listeners that are familiar with patch plant physiology isn't that much different. Patching is hard and, you know, it's also hard in Drosophila. But I think the hardest part is actually what I call the microsurgery. So is uh, keeping the fly alive and opening up its brain and keeping it healthy and Having nice, healthy neurons to record from uh, is probably the hardest thing for me and my students uh, and continues to be. And, you know, for that reason, I think two-photon imaging provides a nice complement to the work we do. So we also do some 
two-photon calcium imaging in the lab, and we use it in parallel with physiology, in part because the sensors have gotten faster and there's more we can do with them, but also because recording from one neuron at a time can be quite slow, especially when the prep is so small. So how do you go about teaching people to do this microsurgery? It's like with any specialized technique you employ in the lab, it seems baffling to other people that it becomes second nature to you. So I actually just had my four-year-old daughter in the lab with me a few weekends ago, and she asked me on command to dissect open a fly head and show her the brain, and I did it. And you know, it really was it really was like second nature within a few minutes to open up the fly head, show her the brain, and explain it to her. So it comes easily over time. But, you know, it's hard to explain to other people why it is you spent years training to be a fly surgeon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in 2010, you started your own lab at Princeton, as I mentioned. And in addition to continuing to study olfaction, your lab now also studies the auditory system in flies. So what made you decide to take on a new system and why? audition in particular. So this is important advice I would give to postdocs um, who are listening to this, which is that I think it's important to establish your own niche as you're finishing your postdoc and launching your own lab. And at the time, you know, I felt like I was under the shadow of a lot of other great people who were working on the Drosophila factory system, and I really wanted to find a way I could distinguish myself. And audition seemed like a really fantastic opportunity. There were very few other people working on the system, almost nobody recording from the central brain. And so it was just very good timing for me. It was challenging in that I had to learn a lot about acoustic signal processing and the physics of sound uh, rather independently. But I think at the end of postdoc, one is in a good position to do these kinds of things. But the auditory system has some real advantages for my work. I had always been interested in the coding of naturalistic stimuli, and sound is really an important part of a fly's natural life. It's critical to mating, which flies do a lot of. So for that reason, there's some interesting questions to ask about how fly brains process natural sounds. They sing species-specific sounds, and so asking how the brain tunes itself up for species-specific signals is something that can be done in the fly nervous system. And the behavior is very robust. So it's possible to record, you know, hundreds, thousands of song bouts and trials and make sense of why the flies are producing these songs and how the songs are impacting behavior. Yeah. So one of your first papers out of your lab at Princeton describes uh, these central brain neurons as responding very differently to courtship song as opposed to non-naturalistic stimuli like white noise or pure tones or such like that. So that study was important because really was first recordings from the auditory pathway of flies. So before then, you know, we really didn't know much at all about how the brain was processing sound. It's sort of the first foray into auditory coding in the brain, I would say, just the tip of the iceberg. But one of the things we learned is that tunings for fly songs really followed the auditory receptor tuning. So um, auditory receptor neurons were tuned to particular patterns and frequencies, and these were well reflected by neurons in the brain. Um, as opposed to uh, synthetic tones and white noise stimuli. There we saw a real transformation in the tuning properties. And so I think the lesson from that is that it's important to consider naturalistic stimuli for the animal to understand how the brain is normally processing a particular sensory stimulus like sound in our case. Fly songs consist mostly of pulses. Mm -hmm. So there are these fast temporal changes that are happening and it turns out the auditory receiver and the brain are really good at representing these pulse responses. And that seems to be what they really care about. And so those temporal features are really well relayed to the brain. And the brain filters out a lot of the information about frequency, for example, mm -hmm. but maintains all those temporal features to relay onto the next layer. But what we're working on now is figuring out what these codes mean. So uh, what are the other codes within the brain? And then what does the fly do with them? 
to understand its fly song. And you'll have to stay tuned for that because uh, it's in progress. So birdsong people are often kind of imitating their birds. Do people in the lab now start <laughs> making imitations to try? That's <laughs> <laughs> really low frequency, kind of very white type song. So uh, I, I usually just play a sample rather than imitating myself. Oh, uh, well, it's a shot in the dark. So we're recording this interview on May 9th. And Earlier this week, you and I were both lucky enough to serve as reporters or rapporteurs, if you want to use the more snooty term, for the two-day NSF meeting about the future of the brain initiative. So now that it's been a couple days since that meeting, what are some of the things that are on your brain, so to speak, about what was discussed at the meeting and about the brain initiative in general? It was a terrific meeting that I was very lucky to be a part of. I'm sure you feel the same. And I have to say this is one of the most exciting times in my career related to neuroscience. So it just feels like there's this buzz happening in the field and we're, we're on the verge of really coalescing around a set of great ideas and accomplishing a, a vast amount. And it's really exciting to be a part of this effort. So that's what I came away with is that, wow, it's really an exciting time for us. It's not just a lot of hype. We're coming together as a community to accomplish some common goals. What those goals will eventually be, I think, is still in progress. And that wasn't surprising to me that uh, it's going to take more meetings and more discussion to have a, a concrete mission statement. But I walked away off to this. Hmm. So could you give us just a brief teaser for what you plan to talk about in your upcoming seminar? Yeah, so um, the two papers you asked me about all dealt with in vivo electrophysiology, but I'm going to actually diverge from that largely in my seminar and talk about behavior. We've done a lot of new experiments in my lab looking at the relationship between behavior and song production and song production and behavior. Sounds are interesting in that the nervous system both produces them and processes them. And we've been working on both sides of that acoustic communication issue. And behavior has been really informative for us to understand what the neural computations are that are being solved by the brain. And I'll present our data and our, our evidence for what we've learned. And now I think we're really well poised to solve the detailed circuit mechanisms that are mediating those computations. So um, that'll be in large part what I talk about. Interesting. So in closing, we like to have just a series of more off-the-cuff, rapid-fire questions that are more fun than anything else. So you were a graduate student in the MCP department, as you mentioned, where I am currently a postdoc. So what is the funniest thing you ever saw at the MCP retreat? I have to say it was Dick Chen doing a rap about the MCP department. I think it involved him wearing a dollar sign around his neck, as I recall. <laughs> Uh, what was your favorite way to relax when you were a student here at Stanford? So I used to be a hip hop dancer and I would um, trek to San Francisco several times a week to dance uh, in classes and with a hip hop dance company in the city. Wow. Are you going to demonstrate? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself? I think for me personally, I think the advice would be to worry a little less and to spend more time being confident because when I look back, I think, wow, I made a lot of really good decisions. Like, I'm really happy with the labs I chose, the work I did, you know, how hard I worked, uh, what ended up coming from it, the perseverance I showed. I, I don't think I would change anything per se, but I spent way too much time worrying about what was going to come next. Would I get a good postdoc? Would it work out? Would I publish a paper? Would I get a job? You know, in retrospect, it was all totally unnecessary. You know, I could have just been relaxed and confident and blissfully happy all the time. So, so this is how you are now with respect to tenure coming up. You are just relaxed and blissfully happy that it's all going to work out, right? Yeah, that's right. Now that you brought this to my attention, I think. So, of course, <laughs> you know, you're telling me I could have Mala from 10 years in the future come back and give me advice. And I think if Mala from 10 years in the future had said, worry less, I would have taken her advice in particular. Right, right. 
Okay. <laughs> so has working with flies changed the way you interact with flies or other insects outside of the lab? So I have to say that, you know, before seeing a common house fly at home was never cause for alarm. But whenever I see one fly into the lab, I do often think that it is like the big older cousin of the fruit flies I work on coming back to get me because <laughs> I killed so many of their cousins. Revenge of the fly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for speaking to us today, Dr. Murthy. And thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Michael Sutton, a professor of molecular and behavioral neuroscience at the University of Michigan. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.stanford.edu slash group slash neurite dash west, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E dash west. Dash west.